Let me thank Edwards Life Sciences for working with us on this podcast. Please note that any surgical techniques discussed herein are the techniques used by the respective medical professionals. Edwards Life Sciences does not endorse any particular surgical technique. Expert opinions and advice represent the medical professional's views and not necessarily those of Edwards Life Sciences or the CSCS. All right, well, hello, everyone. And uh, after an almost two-year hiatus, welcome back to the CSCS Beat, More Than Just Matters of the Heart. My name is Ansar Hassan, and I'm the president of the Canadian Society of Cardiac Surgeons. And I have to say, I am really excited about reinvigorating the CSCS Beat. And I think the plan is really to sit down and chat with some of the thought leaders across Canada and beyond on all things cardiac surgery. So what better way to kind of get together and, and, and talk about things that really matter to us than on this particular forum, the CSCS Beat Podcast. All right, let's get started. Tonight, I want to focus on injection drug use-associated infective endocarditis. And let me start by saying this. I feel that in my, in my practice as a cardiac surgeon, the number of patients being treated with infection and injection drug use associated infective endocarditis appears to be growing exponentially. And I think while guidelines exist around the management of valvular disease in these patients, I think the management is never as clear as the guidelines would suggest. Let me, let me present a case for you. A 38-year-old comes in with a history of IV drug use presenting with fever, chills, and pleuritic chest pain. He's got positive blood cultures. He's got a transthoracic echocardiogram that shows significant tricuspid valvular vegetations, the largest one measuring 2.4 by 1.7 centimeters. And, a, and he's got associated moderate to severe TR. He's got a CT chest that was done that also shows bilateral lesions consistent with septic emboli. If I were to poll surgeons from across the country today regarding how this patient should be treated, I think I would get multiple different answers, all of which are probably correct to a great extent. But truth be told, these patients often pose clinical, social, and ethical conundrums, all of which lead to significant heterogeneity in how they're managed. So on today's podcast, I've gathered a group of esteemed colleagues and leaders from across Canada who are going to do their utmost to bring clarity to this field and to improve the outcomes of patients afflicted with this disease. I'm going to start with Dr. Tommy Brothers. Tommy is an internist and an addiction medicine physician based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He is a fellow in general internal medicine at Dalhousie University and a PhD student in epidemiology at the University College of London. His clinical and research work focuses on improving healthcare for people who use drugs and alcohol. Tommy, welcome. Thanks. Uh, great to be here. This is this is great. Awesome. Dr. Duncan Webster. Dr. Duncan Webster is an infectious disease consultant. A and a medical microbiologist in St. John, New Brunswick, and really a former colleague of mine when I was at the New Brunswick Heart Center. A, a really great, great person all around. He's an associate professor with the Faculty of Medicine at Dalhousie University and provides both inpatient and outpatient support to individuals who struggle with substance use disorder and associated infectious complications. Duncan, great to see you again. Yeah, thanks, Ann. So I appreciate the invite and great to see you as well. Dr. Lynn Fedorik is a cardiac surgeon in Victoria, British Columbia, and has become interested in the work around intravenous drug use, endocarditis, and surgical intervention because of the huge discrepancies in opinion and th about therapies and surgical intervention that occurs across the country and in the field of cardiac surgery. Lynn, so happy that you're with us tonight. Thanks so much, Answer. Looking forward to this. And then finally, Dr. Corey Adams is an associate professor at Foothills Hospital in Calgary, Alberta. 
He's a minimally invasive cardiac surgeon and an expert in valve repair. He founded the Canadian Task Force on, on Intravenous Drug Use with both Tommy and Duncan in 2020. He has published on surgeon practice patterns in this area, harm reduction strategies, provincial incidents, and survival rates associated with injection drug use and infective endocarditis. Corey, awesome to see you on board. Thank you again, and look forward to uh, tonight's discussion. Well, it is a privilege and a pleasure to have you all on the podcast today. So let's get started. Let's get started. So is it just me, Tommy, or are we really seeing that many more patients with infection, infective endocarditis related to injection drug use in our practice? Uh, it's not just you, Ansar. There's been a number of epidemiologic studies showing that the rates of these infections are increasing uh, across Canada, across North America, and, and even internationally, like in England and Australia. The reasons are totally clear why this is happening, but maybe related to more fentanyl and stimulants in the drug supply, so people injecting more often, and related to the social determinants of health, like increasing rates of homelessness uh, contributing to these infections. Yeah, and I would I would agree. I mean, in my practice here in, in the United States, now that I'm based in Portland, Maine, it is not a week goes by that we don't get two to three consults at least on this on this front. So uh, I, I'm not surprised. Uh, but, you know, I attributed some of that to perhaps the, you know, the income inequality that exists in this particular city that I'm in. But I wonder if 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 some of that is a driver, like, is, it, is this a uniform phenomenon that we're seeing across the country? Or do you think do you think that it is particularly worse in cities that perhaps have that really that gradient in socioeconomic status, Tommy? It's something that really hasn't been studied to that level of detail. I think all of us would agree we need a lot more research in this area to understand the drivers and the solutions. But it is really clear based on the existing research that those um, negative social determinants of health uh, that uh, affect people's ability to stay healthy, affect their ability to you know practice good skin hygiene, to have a hygienic place to prepare and inject drugs, um, uh, the ability to safely, quickly access medical care when they need it, those all contribute to risk of infections. Um, and so you could imagine how how that affects populations differently depending on where they live, but uh, that would be a, a big driver. All right. Well, next, T Duncan, the greatest change that I think I've seen in the management of these patients, you know, at the, the level of the hospital is the institution of like a multidisciplinary endocarditis team or the MET team. So what is your sense of this and how well do you think this has worked? Yeah, great, great question. The The, the multidisciplinary endocarditis team, it, it's, it's an important and innovative approach to uh, the care of very complex patients. In fact, uh, the multidisciplinary team is now included in the 2015 European Society of Cardiology Endocarditis Management Guidelines. And uh, it, it makes sense given the complex nature of, of these patients. You know, there, there are medical and surgical issues with multiple specialties involved, and it's, a, it's an illness with a very high mortality. So th there is some research looking at how well this has worked. Uh, among the studies, there's a nice study published in the Annals of uh, Thoracic Surgery uh, last year by uh, uh, El Deladi et al. And at the University of Michigan, um, this group did put together a multidisciplinary team in 2018, and they studied it for a year and compared back to a, a historical cohort within the same facility. And they found that uh, the institution of this, of this multidisciplinary team actually decreased their mortality 
from just under 30% to just over 7%. So pretty, pretty significant numbers there. Now, in that particular study, answer, there wasn't a, a great number of uh, people who inject drugs. There were about 18 in, in total uh, out of uh, 56 patients. And it wasn't really broken down as to how those individuals who, who had injection drug use-related endocarditis played out in terms of their outcomes. But there, there's some, some other studies. There's a nice uh, review by Weimer and colleagues published in 2021 in the Journal of Addiction and Medicine that looked at the multidisciplinary team specific to injection drug use-related endocarditis. And they recognized that by bringing in a number of different specialties, like addiction medicine, cardiac surgery, cardiology, infectious disease, but also supportive teams like social work and and uh, and uh, nursing care management teams, they uh, definitely improve the outcomes. And again, it it only it only uh, makes sense. Now, although I would say in our own facility, I think at, at the St. John Regional Hospital, I, I would say we were ahead of the curve about 15 years ago with methadone induction on the medicine ward. But unfortunately, we've I think fallen behind a little bit and we've not been able to successfully implement this team at our site, but that's probably another topic for another podcast on another day. Yeah, absolutely. No, definitely. And I've, I, that's probably the biggest change I've noticed from when I was in New Brunswick to where I am now. I mean, the Met team is strong and it's, 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 it's all, it's all encompassing and it, it almost has to be for all the reasons that you mentioned, Duncan. Uh, so all right, Corey. Here we go. This is this is a little this is a little bit of a tricky question, but I think as surgeons, we're often accused of not wanting to operate on these patients, and it's for a variety of reasons. So, for those listening to this podcast who are not surgeons, Corey, uh, perhaps you could explain the conundrum that we face as surgeons. Why do why do surgeons hesitate? Yeah. So, surgical guidelines are often met with you know class one indications. If, if, for instance, as a heart surgeon, if you have uh, aortic valve disease, we can look at an echocardiogram in your symptoms and we can say this is the class one indication to make you live longer and to improve your overall quality of life. When it comes to this topic, there are indications and there are some are class one, which means you, you that all the evidence points or most of the evidence points toward doing it. And there's some of class two, which say some evidence points towards doing it with benefits. In this population, because the numbers are small, slightly understudied in terms of their surgical history, we don't have great, great guidelines. We don't have clear consensus guidelines. Now, groups are trying to change this. Uh, there's been some recently updated papers, the American Heart Association, you have the European Journal, the Canadian guidelines. We're trying to create clear guidelines for when we should intervene on. So the first part of that is probably there's a bit of difference in the guidelines. Should it be a person's in heart failure? Should it be that a person has a large vegetation? So that's the indications for moving ahead with endocarditis. Then it gets a little challenging when you have a patient who has a history of utilizing uh, or using intravenous drugs. You worry about as the surgeon and putting a valve in place that may get infected in the future. So now surgeons will talk about, well, compliance. Is the patient going to be compliant to the long-term uh, needed intravenous or oral antibiotics that are required? So there's question about further treatment. Because what we do know, answer is that patients can survive the operation in the first 30 days. Patients with this can have uh, large infections of the heart and the relative risk of death in the first 30 days is relatively low. 
what happens is reinfection rates. So if a patient were to reinfect, we've shown that the relative risk of death between the days 31 and 180 is very, very high. So recurrence or infection of that prosthetic valve is a big issue. So surgeons are faced with the idea of saying, okay, I'm going to offer surgical intervention. Is the patient going to be compliant or have we set the patient up to be compliant? Because a lot of times as surgeons, we treat the manifestation of this disease, but the issues surrounding addiction, the environment, this, the harm reduction strategies that are needed are not addressed and the patient gets reinfected. Then the right. surgeons feels their, their interaction is futile. So that's, okay. the surgeons aren't saying they don't want to operate. They're just trying to make sure that what we're doing is the correct thing. And do we have all the processes in place? Yeah. And I think that's a, you know, unfortunately that's become a bone of contention in a lot of places. And I get it. I understand why, but I think the points you raise are, are valid. And Lynn, all right, let me, let me, I mean, you, you, I'm sure are seeing a, a number of these patients in your practice as well. And ethically speaking, I mean, can surgeons really turn these patients down? I mean, all right even let me change it slightly, instead of necessarily turning these patients down, can we at least put them off, uh, provided, of course, that they can tolerate this medically, hemodynamically, and from an infectious standpoint, so that we can maybe establish like proof, proof of sobriety before taking them to the OR to fix their valve? Well, I think this is one of the places where literature is a lot of equipoise, because if you read some of the literature, for instance, some of the stuff out of the Cleveland Clinic, which states we should operate on them all the time, every time, and we shouldn't even think about how many times you reinfect it, that literature is put together by PhD ethicists, not by medical doctors or surgeons. And when you start to look at the medical literature, that's where the decision is really not black and white. And it goes back to some of the things Corey was saying about the futility of operating on somebody with the repeat risk of endocarditis, if they look at the one-year data, is about 55%. And then if we offer them a second operation, the majority of them are dead within one or two years. So at what point do you say this is just an exercise in futility as opposed to the moral obligation that we seem to have to continue to look at this? And, you know, this is where this whole point of the podcast is, is, is to come up with that in-between round of discussion where we can actually sit and look at patients and take them on a case-by-case basis, you know, looking at the multidisciplinary teams and doing what we can do to set people up for success. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I, I, I second that wholeheartedly. And I think that's one of the biggest problems is that as surgeons, we're asked to operate on a valve and we, we can do that. But I think it's the other piece of the equation that we don't necessarily have nailed down. So Tommy, talk to me a little bit about addiction care and harm reduction services in this patient population. I mean, where are we at? But, but more importantly, though, where do we need to get to? Yeah, thanks, Ansar. I think this is one of those areas in medicine where we have this huge gap between what we know in terms of the evidence and, and what we do in terms of what's actually delivered, especially in the hospital setting. So as you know, in medicine, we think of addiction, uh, substance use disorders as a treatable health condition with multiple evidence-based strategies for addiction treatment, for harm reduction interventions, for intervening on the social determinants of health. Uh, that reduce the risks of, of patients who use drugs, uh, reduce the risk of death dramatically. Um, especially through overdose, and also reduce the risks of bacterial infections and reinfections. Um, so things like opiate agonist treatment or medications for opiate use disorder like methadone or buprenorphine, um, needle and syringe distribution programs or needle exchanges, safe consumption sites, 
um, you know, all these things uh, can reduce the risks of infections and they're not offered uh, in many hospital settings. They're not facilitated um, for patients with these infections very often. Uh, that is increasing. I think a number of us are uh, facilitating some of that work at our hospital, our, our national network, as, as you mentioned, uh, that, that Corey and Duncan and Lynn have been involved in, um, is trying to spread that word and, and those conversations. But um, definitely huge room for improvement in terms of offering these evidence-based strategies to these patients. Yeah, hundred percent. I think that's the hardest part is how do we establish this and how do we establish it effectively, uh, especially in today's healthcare model. Duncan, uh, I think, you know, I remember, well, you and your colleagues at the regional hospital in St. John, you're unique in that you're both infectious disease specialists and addiction care specialists. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that model and how do you feel that benefits patients coming to your center with this particular affliction? Like, are you more comfortable sending these patients home, for instance, with IV antibiotics and a PICC line to complete their courses? I know, for instance, at our center, we we don't send anybody home with a PICC line, let alone, you know, IV antibiotics in any way, shape or form, because there's a fear that they will have all the tools necessary to to engage in a relapse or to continue, you know, you know, abusing drugs. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, great question. So, you know, as as an infectious diseases physician and a number of my colleagues as well, we found that because of the increasing rates of of uh, injection drug use and substance use disorder, that it has been essential that we extend our scope of practice, because with injection drug use, there are a lot of infectious complications and endocarditis being one of those major complications. So, so a number of us have actually sought out additional training in addiction medicine so that we can assist with stabilizing people and improve their care. So it's a, it's a bit like a cardiologist. You know, it, People wouldn't be surprised if they went to their cardiologist and the cardiologist talked to them about smoking cessation. It's very similar. So, you know, as an infectious diseases physician, to be able to offer opiate agonist therapy and other harm reduction modalities, as Tommy had mentioned, it, it, it just makes sense. So, as a consultant, the, the use of substances and, and factors that put people at risk for endocarditis and other infectious complications, it's really important that those are addressed. And when we do address them, we've got some tools that we can use. You know, we, we can help to stabilize individuals when they arrive in hospital. We can improve their patient stay, improve adherence to, to care, and as a result, improve outcomes. One of the big factors is decreasing the uh, the amount of times that we see people leave against medical advice, and that that has had uh, really significant impacts. So it has impacts on the inpatient basis, but also on an outpatient basis because you know we can we can extend our care out into the community as well. So that's one thing that we've been able to do by by not only being inpatient consultants but also working in the community. Uh, with a lot of community sort, supports in place, we can follow patients into the community. And so, yeah, that, that does make us much more comfortable with discharging. We can ensure that follow-up happens uh, with a lot of community uh, network s- systems in place. And we're able to assist patients more effectively. Now, sometimes we discharge people and keep them on IV antibiotics, and that would go along with the, the general endocarditis guidelines. But it's really important to individualize therapy too. So sometimes, depending on the individual, we do step people down to oral therapy. And I think that's in another really important line of discussion because there is growing evidence. You know, there's, there's been a number of focusing specifically on people who inject drugs with endocarditis. There are some small retrospective case series, but 
but not a ton of data to provide really great guidance. But I, I think, you know, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable without mentioning the POET trial, which is getting a lot of, a lot of press and a lot of discussion. And just very quickly, it was a large randomized controlled trial of antibiotic treatment for left-sided endocarditis. And in that study, partial oral treatment was found to be non-inferior to a full course of IV therapy. So in this large study, injection drug use was not a criteria for exclusion. And it was a good study in that it, it I guess, applicable to people who inject drugs with endocarditis because a large number of, of patients in the study did have Staph aureus uh, as the pathogen, which would be the most common pathogen we see among people who inject drugs with endocarditis. But unfortunately, there were actually only two people in this large study who were individuals injecting drugs who were assigned oral step-down therapy. So certainly definite limitations, which kind of comes back to the fact that you know data right now really is uh, is lacking, and we need to improve that understanding. But it does suggests that oral step-down therapy may be an option. But again, we need to make sure that as people are discharged that, you know, psychosocial, socioeconomic factors, housing, addiction treatment, medication coverage, all these things are really important, which again brings us back, I think, to that multidisciplinary team. Yeah, absolutely. All right. With all of that in mind, let's go back to the case I first presented, a 38-year-old IV drug user who comes in with tricuspid valve endocarditis, large vegetation, moderate to severe TR, septic emboli to his lungs, documented. Lynn, what would you do? Well, in the first case, it's not an emergency, nor is it an acute urgency. With the septic emboli to the lungs, it gives us an opportunity to say, okay, we need to step back and treat this guy with antibiotics before we do anything else, which makes him a captive audience because he's going to be in hospital, hopefully for his IV antibiotic therapy for his lungs. That gives us the opportunity to involve the multidisciplinary team, addictions medicine, to try and set this guy up for success before we actually go in and say, okay, we need to operate on you. At some point, he will need to have his valve addressed, but I think that that becomes almost secondary to the rest of the issues. And this gives us the opportunity to look at that. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I think you and I both agree that this is exactly the way I would, you know, approach this patient, you know, you know, take that watch and wait approach and use this time to kind of try to address all of the other issues. But I think we would agree that this is somebody that we would operate on, you know, provided that, you know, a lot of the tick boxes were checked, right? Oh, ultimately, yes. It just doesn't need to be tomorrow. Right. Exactly. And I think that's a really important point. All right, Corey, I'm going to change it slightly. Same exact case but he's already had a tricuspid valve replacement two years ago, and now it's his prosthetic valve that's infected. What's your what's your strategy there? Yeah, well, I think we start, we approximately pretense, or we do a multidisciplinary team meeting, like what we do for complex coronaries and complex valvular heart disease. So start with our meeting with our team and say, okay, who is here from addictions medicine? Where's our infectious disease specialist? Where's our, our cardiology imaging expert? And then I would work with that group and I would want to know, okay, what have we tried for treatment? Where are we with uh, the harm reduction strategies that have been used? Where's the commitment with the patient? And eventually I would likely move towards surgery for this patient again, but I would have everybody together to discuss our plan for this. And then I would go over our 
operative strategy, then you have to sit down with your discussion with the patient. You talk to them about this is going to be a high-risk operation. But ultimately, my belief is we would offer these patients redo surgery. And again, we'd come back with the with having a plan, a pre-operative assessment and a post-operative assessment. Yeah. And I think that's it. And I mean, look, at the end of the day, I think Lynn said this beautifully earlier. She said, you know, no two cases are really the same. Uh, and I think every case needs to be considered on its own clinical, social, and for that matter, ethical merit. Uh, yeah. But we really do need more research. We need guidance, you know, uh, and it, it, it's not enough to just say that this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do. There's enough patients now that I think, I think the data needs to come out as to what it is that the right thing is. All right, Tommy, I'm going to give you the last word. First of all, I, I want to congratulate you on having been awarded a CIHR Planning and Dissemination Grant for your proposal entitled Research Priority Setting to Improve Care for People Who Inject Drugs with Infective Endocarditis in Canada. This is all part of the Canadian Injection Drug Use Associated Endocarditis Working Group. So congratulations on that. And and as a CSCS, we're really proud to be working with you and your task force on this very particular subject. Tell me more about this group for those of for those of us who don't know, and and what are you what are you all hoping to accomplish? Yeah, thanks so much, Ansar. So this group started uh, probably a couple of years ago now. Um, I think initially with Corey and Lynn trying to start conversations with colleagues from all these different uh, professional backgrounds and disciplines across the country. Uh, for all the reasons we've talked about today, like you know the research being insufficient, the guidelines uh, not being robust enough, trying to improve care in all of our hospital settings, and uh, we've we've met. Um, you know, regularly to have these discussions. There's a few collaborative research projects on the go. We had a seminar series last spring on various topics, including a, a speaker with lived experience, Natasha Tusnard. Um, that's all up on uh, YouTube. If you just Google Canadian endocarditis injection drug use on YouTube, it should come up. Uh, and the purpose of this grant uh, that you, you mentioned was just recently funded by CIHR is to provide us with funding to um, involve the co-leadership of people with lived experience. So Natasha Tusnard, um, and Matthew Bond from the Canadian Association of People Who Use Drugs and Katie Upham from the Substance Use Network of the Atlantic Region are involved in the projects as co-eyes and knowledge users. Um, and I think all of us would agree, you know, we want to try to improve care for this patient population. It hasn't been as good as it needs to be. So learning from people with lived experience um, and, and that community um, is crucial. Uh, so having money to involve their co-leadership and then um, doing a Delphi project across the professional health providers and people with lived experience to try to do some priority setting and provide further direction to our, our national group is the goal. Yeah. Awesome. Outstanding work and just uh, just an awesome initiative all around. So look, I want to thank everyone for uh, your time and your wisdom. And uh, I think this was great and a lot of fun. And hopefully, hopefully our listeners will feel the same way. I, I think once again, I would like to thank our sponsors, Edward Life Sciences, uh, for their for their uh, for their leadership and their support on this front, and obviously the production team at Bang Albino for bringing this all together. That wraps it up for the latest edition of the CSCS Beat, More Than Just Matters of the Heart. Uh, stay tuned for more podcasts in the near future, and uh, hey, if you got any ideas, just let us know. We'd be more than happy to tackle them in our upcoming podcast series. All the best. <laughs>